One of the reasons that saving our seed is becoming more important is because there are three companies right now that control about 90% of the world's seed. Three companies only, and I've got more than that listed here. The ones with a red X on them are companies that existed last year that have either been bought or combined with the three companies that are left. And the three companies that are left are Bayer, Bayer AgriSystems, Chem China, and Corteva, which is a conglomeration of DuPont and Dow AgriSciences. Corteva is the only one that is based in the United States. These three companies, as I said, control the network of seed producers and seed marketing companies throughout the world. This aggregation started taking place in the late 1990s with the advent of uh, genetically modified crops and it has accelerated to the point now where basically all of these little blue bubbles were seed companies, companies that had the rights and the, and, and the fields where the seed was grown and preserved and processed and marketed and they're all under the control now of essentially three primary companies and they're all interrelated. So even companies that we typically thought were independent because they had a different name maybe than Monsanto were still controlled by the parent companies that determined what varieties of seed would be marketed the next year. Now, seed is an interesting thing because if we stop reproducing seed, what happens to the variety? It goes extinct. And this is the reason why we had so many thousands of varieties of crops 100 years ago that we no longer have today because they weren't considered economically viable. These seed companies profit by developing new varieties and they want you to buy those new varieties and if they hold the rights to the seed uh, that you're currently using and they decide they want you to use a newer variety, all they have to do is stop contracting for the reproduction of that seed and it's, it's gone. Ten years ago I was growing a variety of cabbage called uh, Red, uh, uh, Red Success. It was an excellent open pollinated variety of cabbage. I can't get seed for that anymore because the company that was producing that seed got a directive from someone up the chain of corporate structure that said we've got other red varieties that we want to introduce into the marketplace because uh, these are the varieties that, that uh, we make the most profit on so instead of red success now we have red express as an example and this has occurred with about 15 or 20 of the different seed varieties, some of them hybrid, some of them open pollinated, that I have wanted to produce over the years. So about a decade ago, I decided if I want these varieties, I better keep them and maintain them for myself. And that's what I've done. One of the activities that we have at Berea Gardens, our, our farm in Virginia, is that we've decided to start a seed bank there. And that seed bank is basically uh, acquiring seeds from our friends and neighbors that have a long history of gardening within the, uh, the, the uh, Little Canal River Valley where I live that have been there for 100 or 150 years, seeds like this little bean right here. And we wanted to make sure that they didn't go extinct. And we wanted to acquire those seeds for our own use because, hey, they're really well adapted to that area because they've been there so long. I can't buy this seed anywhere. There's no place I can buy this seed. 
and the only way I'm going to be able to grow it successively is if I produce that seed myself. So there's a lot of incentive for us to take up this activity, more so now than, than, than ever before. If you're just starting out in gardening, when you buy your initial seed to plant your garden, I strongly recommend that you buy seed from a reliable commercial grower's supplier, not just some mail order seed company or not just seed packs off the, off the rack down at Walmart or your local garden center. Go to, uh, uh, you know, go to some resources online and find a company that supplies market growers. Now why would I say that? The reason that I say that is that seed just like the foods and, and vegetables and fruits that we buy vary tremendously in quality. And guess where the worst quality gets sold? It gets sold direct market to consumers because frankly most home gardeners don't know the difference between a good seed and a bad seed. And if they plant something that doesn't germinate well they just assume it was their fault. But a commercial grower relies on the seed that he's purchasing He's buying a lot more seed than most home gardeners are, and the company's reputation that's selling that seed is a little bit on the line. They want repeat customers, and they don't want bad press. So a seed can look actually the same in size and the same in appearance and still have vastly different uh, qualities, partly because of the variation in density of the seed. One of the ways that seed is graded is by specific gravity. The heavier the seed and the same size, generally the better quality that seed is. It has more energy stored in it and that energy is what's going to produce the plant when you put that in the ground and you'll get a better quality plant from a dense seed than from a lighter seed. So the seeds are graded, typically three grades, and the lightest grade, the one that has the least vigor and the least energy stored in it, is the one that gets sold in the little seed packets typically. So by buying a, uh, from a commercial supplier, you, you get uh, typically better quality seed. If you need a list of those, uh, my website is bereagardens.org, and uh, we have a list of seed suppliers that I use. Not that those are the only ones that are good, but if you need a starting point, there's five or six seed companies that I use that you can order from online, and you'll get much better quality seed than what you'll get locally. When you're selecting these varieties, select varieties that are for your conditions. Consider your climate, your day length, how long your season is, and uh, also factors of disease resistance. Now, that's more important for me where I live in West Virginia because we live in an environment that is very hot and humid in the summer and very conducive to a lot of different diseases. So that's usually one of the first considerations I make when I'm selecting a new variety to trial is its disease resistance. That helps in a, enormously in a variety of other ways too, uh, some of which I've talked about this, this uh, week in terms of pest control. Always plant multiple varieties in your garden of the same crop. If you're growing broccoli, for example, grow three or four varieties of broccoli. Don't focus on just one variety. And that's to overcome some of the variables that we get with environmental conditions during the growing season. Sometimes, for example, I grow about seven different varieties of lettuce each year, 
Uh, two of those varieties are, one is a red leaf variety and one is a romaine variety that are my primary economic staples for the markets that I have. I sell a lot of the, uh, the romaine and the red leaf lettuce to the school systems in our area. And if I happen to have a really bad year and, and, and uh, the genetic characteristics of that red leaf lettuce allow for a certain invasion of, of uh, a downy mildew strain or something, I may not produce it uh, very well but some of the other backup strains that I have maybe, do, maybe will, will perform very well. And I've seen, uh, I've, I've seen many instances where one year one variety will do very well and the next year it doesn't do so well and one of the varieties that typically doesn't do very well does very well. So you, you have variation each growing season with the characteristics of the crop that you're gonna grow. So grow a variety of different crops for your security. I use also a combination of open pollinated varieties, which is what we're going to focus on uh, today in, in seed saving, but I do use hybrid varieties too. And there are many um, kind of myths circulating among the, the gardening community today about the virtue of open pollinated varieties over hybrid varieties. And I want to dispel some of that with you today because frankly there is absolutely no reason not to make use of hybrid seed. One of the disadvantages of using hybrid seed is if you save it for the succeeding season, you don't really know what you're going to get. It's got very various variations in its genetic characteristics, and you don't really know what you're going to get. But there's no reason, there's no additional virtue, there's no Edenic property to uh, 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 an open pollinated seed over a, a hybrid seed. Uh, in fact, in reality, the, the only difference between the two is seven generations, and I'm going to walk you through that in a minute. One thing I strongly suggest, too, if you're preparing for uh, next gardening season or a gardening season two or three years from now, is to order your seeds now. Get them now. And the reason that I say that has to do with that conglomeration of seed companies that I was pointing out to you. The, 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 the range and, and, and variety that we have available to us is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And if you identify a variety in your seed catalog that looks like it has good characteristics and you want to get some to, to utilize in your own garden, even though you may not plant it next year or the following year, get it now. And I'm going to talk to you in a few minutes about how you can store that seed for a long period of time viably and make use of it when you are ready to use it. But as I said, this gene pool is getting smaller. The available varieties are, are, are getting narrower. This, this, this world of, of, of seed variation is shrinking very, very quickly. Now, seed is made by the sexual reproduction of plants. And I'm going to take us back to, to our high school science class here for just a minute to give you an explanation of the difference between an open pollinated or sometimes they're called heirlooms uh, a variety of, of seed and what a hybrid seed is and what the difference is between the two. Uh, if we look at seed, it's the, the combination of a male portion of the plant, which is the pollen from the stamens of the plant, and a female egg in the plant, which is inside the pistil. When this pollen falls down, I've got a weak battery here, if this pollen falls down and fertilizes this egg from the same plant, the, the, the flowers have both sexual parts, then that's what's considered an open pollinated variety. 
and an open pollinated variety can extend across many different individuals if they're all genetically, uh, genetically the same. For example, aroma tomato is an open pollinated variety, and if this flower is growing on one aroma tomato plant and this flower is growing on one that's 30 feet down the row, they're still genetically identical. Both the pollen and the egg have the same characteristics. So this can pollinate this, and this can pollinate this, and you still have uh, the, the same genetic characteristics within that plant, and that seed will reproduce what we call true to type. Open pollinated varieties will reproduce true to type, meaning that the characteristics that you get in the following season are gonna be identical to what you planted in the current season uh, from which you saved the seed. Now, an F one hybrid is something that's a little bit different. And we use hybridization to combine the characteristics of two different types of, of the same species of plant. This only works within the same species of plant. Uh, you know, you can't pollinate a corn plant with a bean seed, obviously. And that's because these pollens are very spe species specific. So I'm gonna use just this example here of having a seed parent. In this case, this is the female seed parent with the eggs down here and a male pollen parent that has a different characteristic, smaller flower with dark, dark petals. In hybridizing, what we do is we secure this uh, this, this egg here and make certain that only this pollen from this pollen parent fertilizes this egg. In the traditional early stages of plant breeding, typically this is done by removing the stamens on this flower so that it can't self-pollinate. So we now have an, a, a, a seed here that has half of its genetic code from this flower, the large single color flower, and half of its genetic code from the smaller flower with the dark uh, petal tips. The offspring of that can express any combination of those two characteristics. It can be a smaller flower that is not bicolor. It can be a larger flower that is bicolor, which is the example that I've shown you here. It can, it can combine a number of the different characteristics of those two parents. It has the genetic code and instruction for both. And this is considered an F1 hybrid offspring here. I'm going to give up on that. The F1 hybrid offspring <coughs> uh, is, is a combination of the characteristics of the two seed parents, the pollen parent and the seed parent. Now that effort will be made until this F1 offspring is consistent, that we find two parents that produce a consistent offspring with the characteristic that we were looking for. In this case, a large flower with colored tips. And that's considered an F1 hybrid. F1 stands for first filial or first family relationship. The diagram in, in the upper left here shows us coming up with that F1 hybrid offspring. And many, many people, there's a myth that you can't save seed from hybrid. How many of you have heard that? That's not true. What is true is you can't save seed from that hybrid and expect it to reproduce true to type. And there's another danger in that too that I'll share with you in just a moment. 
If you continue though to allow this F1 hybrid to self-pollinate, the offspring of that will be the F2. And the F2 may have entirely different characteristics from this. All of the general characteristics will be of those first two parents, but the different combinations of genes, which ones are dominant, can give you a different expression in the offspring. So in the F2 generation, or the second generation of this, we've got a small flower that's bicolor. It's a little bit more like the pollen parent, but it's even smaller than that. If we allow that to self-pollinate and go to the F3 generation, we get something different yet again because the, the genetics are not stabilized. The dominant genes have not all uh, kind of stabilized. When we get to F4, same thing happens. F6, it starts to settle that genome a little bit and we start to get more of a consistent expression of the dom dominant characteristics so that by the time we're at the F7 generation, this crop is reproducing true to type and you have a new open pollinated variety. Pretty cool, huh? I share this with you because I want, I want us to start experimenting more with our F1s. Typically we've been told you can't do that, uh, but there's no reason why you can't. And in some instances, at this F2, 3, or 4 level, you're going to find a really extraordinary variety. Something that works really, really well for you. The challenge is, you can't save the seed from that F3 and have it reproduce true to type. So if you want that same crop again, you've got to go back through these same steps and go, you know, and, and take three years to reproduce that. But I'm, I don't want you to discourage you from, from doing that because it's really kind of cool. Now there is a caveat to this that can throw a wrench in the whole system of producing your own new open pollinated variety and that is that when the seed companies initially select these two parents here, they typically find a seed parent, the one that they want to fertilize the egg in, that is pollen sterile, that has a gene for sterility. And that means that that gene for sterility is carried on through these other generations and if it should express dominantly, that's going to be the end of the line for you because you won't be able to produce seed from that plant. But by the time, you know, a lot of work has been done before this point too so that these two are very settled in their genetics and you know what the outcome of, is going to be in that first F1 cross there, okay? Now there's no reason why you can't do some of this in your gardens too. I think seed experimentation is a fun thing. It takes time and it requires more space and energy, but it can be a lot of fun. But I, I, I show this to you to encourage you to maybe kind of give up on some of that myth that somehow an open pollinated variety of a crop is more virtuous or has more Edenic qualities in the sense that it's more like what God created than a hybrid. That's, that's hogwash. And the reality is that we have opportunities with hybrid seed to save them and to use them in breeding programs and to make them useful also. All right. While I'm saying that, I just want to point out there is no single article of food that we eat on this planet today that is anything like what its original creation was. There's absolutely nothing. No fruits, no grains, no vegetables. There is nothing 
anywhere near like what the original uh, construction was. And part of the reason for that is, is this hybridization process takes place in nature all the time. Every time a bee carries a grain of pollen to a, a, a different plant, you have cross-pollination, you have a new hybrid variety. Every time a wind blows and tree pollen blows across the landscape and the oak trees are, are, are setting their acorns, those acorns are all genetically genetic variations of each other. And nothing that we eat today is anything like what it originally was. Genetically modified is a whole different world. You do not want to save, in fact, legally you can't save seed from a genetically modified crop. It's illegal. So I'll just leave it at that. That puts an end to that talk. Uh, th those are different critters. Okay, for, for saving seed in your garden, we want to start with healthy plants that are dedicated to the purpose of producing seed. The biggest mistake most home gardeners make is that they go out and they plant their kale and they're harvesting kale and then all of a sudden the kale bolts and they think, oh well, I'll just leave it in the garden for a while and collect the seed when it's done. Big mistake, big mistake to do that because all of that leaf matter is what provides the nutrition for that top quality seed. These plants aren't growing because they think we're going to eat them. They're growing because they want to reproduce themselves and produce seeds. So you've got to let that plant do its job of reproduction. And you can't succeed in that if you're harvesting crop off of that, uh, especially with vegetables. Now with fruiting crops, it's a little bit different, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. But you want to dedicate the plant to that purpose. And when you do it, you want to select the strongest plants that you have. This is where over generations, when this bean was first planted in the Little Kanawha Valley of West Virginia, uh, I don't know if it was this big or not. It likely was, was probably a smaller bean. And the generations that have grown that there since then had the sense to save the best of their crop for seed for the next year. That's a selection process. That's a natural selection process that has taken place for for generations among farmers that improve the qualities of the crop, especially for your specific environment. So select the strongest and you want to make sure that there's no virus, disease, or mechanical damage on the crops that you collect seed from either. The other consideration is in order to produce seed that's true to type and avoid making an inadvertent hybrid, you've got to have a secure isolation of the crops that you're going to, or those plants that you're going to use for seed. And isolation can occur two ways. It can occur by distance or it can occur by time. I was just talking with someone about uh, some of the, uh, uh, the open pollinated corn that, that I have seed for over here. And she was worried about planting it because the neighbors across the road plant GMO corn and she didn't want it to cross-pollinate. So I explained to her that if she waits until about two to three weeks after they plant that corn across the street, she can safely plant hers. Because by the time the pollen on the corn across the street that is GMO is, is, has expended its pollen and the pollen is no longer viable, then hers will be self-pollinated in her own field. So time is a wonderful tool for providing isolation to our crops. Um, the aspect of distance is not 100 percent, 
but it's also a means of producing, uh, producing seed. And I have to use distance more so than time with crops that grow on an annual basis, like squash or pumpkins or tomatoes. I, I can't vary my planting dates on that too much. And even if I do, the tomatoes are producing all season. So I've got lots of tomato pollen in the environment and lots of, of uh, uh, opportunity for cross-pollination with insects moving it. But use either distance or time to segregate these varieties. The second biggest mistake people make in saving their own seed is using seed from food that they've harvested. Saving a tomato that they decided was really tasty tomato or some neighbor gives them a tomato and they decided that, wow, that was really good, I wanna save the seed from this and planting that or a cucumber um, or, or, or a green bean. Uh, seeds will actually germinate when they're fairly immature, but for the best quality seed and for the longest lasting seed, you want seed that is very, very ripe. And for vegetables, that means that the seed has grown to a point where, or the plant has grown to a point where it's naturally shedding about 10% of its seed. I'll get into more detail on vegetable seed here in a minute, but when the plant is shedding 10% uh, of its seed, that's the time to harvest it, not before then. And for fruits like tomatoes or cucumbers or melons, you want them far past the point where they're edible. Things that we would consider, oh, way, that's way too old. I'm not going to eat that. In fact, watermelons and many other uh, of, of the fruits will actually split open and start to decay a little bit. I wait until my tomatoes are, are, are kind of rubbery and, and starting to sour on the vine before I, I save the seed from them to make sure that it's totally mature. Immature seed can grow, but it's not as viable and won't store as long. For collecting seed, it's really a fairly simple process with vegetables. Number one, uh, let me go back a little bit to how I use time to segregate uh, uh, the, the, the crops that I'm saving seed from. I told you earlier, I grow seven different varieties of lettuce, and you know that occupies a lot of space so how do I keep all that lettuce from cross-pollinating? Well, it's pretty obvious that for the most part, I harvest my lettuce for market long before it's producing seed. So I can produce seven different varieties and designate maybe one or two varieties for the, for, for the plants that I'm going to use to save seed from. And I let them continue to grow. They're in the ground long after the other ones have been harvested, so there's no threat from uh, from cross-pollination there. And in general, it takes at least twice as long, sometimes three times as long to produce seed as it does to grow the crop. The vast majority of things that we eat that are vegetables, like broccoli and cauliflower, we're cutting at a very, very uh, uh, immature stage in terms of seed production. So you're going to need to consider that in timing your crop so that you're not trying to grow broccoli seed from a late planted crop of broccoli that's going to need to be producing its seed in January or, or, or when it's not practical for that plant to be growing. Typically, I use spring planted uh, crops for my seed production and my seed is not ripe even with things like lettuce until usually September and I've already harvested the, the, the lettuce maybe back in May. Now, most of our vegetable crops, things like kale and 
broccoli and cauliflower and uh, uh, cabbage and, and other plants uh, produce their seed on what's called a panicle. They'll send a shoot up from the center of the seed. Most of us have seen this when our crops have bolted. Lettuce the same way. It'll shoot up what's called a seed panicle that sets the flowers and then the seeds are formed on that panicle that rises. And most generally our, our, our vegetable seed crops are in tiny pods that mature after that, uh, that flower has been pollinated. And when those pods 10% of them split open and start to spill the seed on the ground. That's when it's time to harvest the entire panicle. And what I do is I take a large trash bag and I put it over the seed panicle. I gather it at the bottom and I cut the seed panicle off. And then I take that seed panicle into a dark room and hang it upside down for a period of time. And you want to do this when that panicle is dry and you're going to want to continue to dry it even more. So I will take the panicle inside. Typically what I'll do is I'll string a, a, put a, a string across the room where I'm drying this and I'll put some newspaper on the ground under it and I will remove the panicle from that plastic bag and just hang it upside down to continue drying. I'll place it in a dark environment <clears throat> and allow it to dry down to at least 12% moisture. This is another reason why a lot of people don't have success when saving their own seed. They don't dry it enough. And I'm not talking about 12% humidity. I'm not talking about 12% moisture in the environment. I'm talking about 12% moisture in the seed. In the, in, in the seed industry, we use moisture meters to measure this, but this is really critical. It's got to be less than 12% or it will not store. It'll rot. Now how do we know for home gardeners when that seed is at 12 percent? Well, I want to do an experiment here. This is usually where I get to pull out my pocket knife and show you how to, show you how to tell when a seed is at 12 percent, but the airport wouldn't let me bring it. <laughs> so I'm going to ask for a volunteer here, if there's someone that has a pocket knife, if I could borrow it for just a moment. What I do is I, I take the seed, and this is true, I'm going to use a bean seed here, but this is true for any kind of seed to determine whether there's less than 12% moisture in it and it's ready for storage. And if, if you can get in a position to see this, it would be helpful, but if not, just use your ears and you'll see what happens. Now, what happens typically when you cut something with a knife? It splits open or you cut it in half. What I'm going to do here is push this down. This is... This is not a great pocket knife, by the way. You, you, you might be in trouble in your job interview. <laughs> okay, what just happened? It shattered. The seed just shattered. There's no clean cut here. I broke the seed. I'm sorry, Pam, this was your seed, but I sacrificed it to a good, good cause. But it actually broke apart and shattered. I didn't slice through it. I didn't cut through it. And that's a, a simple test to tell whether you've got... Uh, less than 12% moisture in your seed. So is that a good sign? This is a good sign. This is, this is good. This will store for a good long while for you. And I'll tell you how. <laughs> I'll tell you how. Um, okay, once you've, once you've got the seed dried down to that point, and again, let's visualize we're in our room with our seed panicle hanging. We just tested the seed, and it's, it's less than 12% moisture. Now we've got to separate the seed from the rest of the stuff, the pod, the stems, the leaves, 
that might be dried on the plant. At this point, I'll put it back in that plastic trash bag and I'll take out all of my frustrations by beating that bag against the wall. And this is really good therapy. If I say to my wife, honey, I'm gonna go clean some seeds, she knows something's on my mind. She knows I'm, I'm bugged about something. But it's fun and I just kinda, you know, break it up and beat it up a little bit and give it a little rub like this and get all that loose seed uh, separated from, from its pods. And it drops down to the bottom of the bag. I open the bag and I remove the bulk of the other stuff but there's still a lot of that chaff that's mixed in with the seed. At that point, I'll pour the bag into a five gallon bucket and I set up a little box fan at the end of a table. I set another bucket behind the box fan, an empty one, behind the box fan, not in front of it. I'll turn on the box fan and I will slowly pour the seed from one bucket to the other and adjust the distance to that box fan so that I'm pulling out the majority of the debris and it blows through your box fan. You can get your box fan dirty, but it's better to do it on the back side than it is the front side because you have a lot more control over the suction of the air rather than you do the air blowing into it. And I'll, I'll, I'll do that once or twice or maybe even three times until all of that debris is out of my seed. And I'll do it the third time fairly close to the fan so that about 10% of that seed actually blows through the fan. I'm not trying to save every seed at this point. Why? Because I want the heavier seed. I want the seed that has the strongest viability and the best quality. So 10% of it gets blown away in the wind. Then it's ready to package, to label, and date, and to store. Now that's vegetable seed. Fruit seed's a little different critter because if I'm saving a tomato, for example, I don't have to dedicate that single plant to seed production because it potentially is gonna produce a lot of tomatoes and I don't need more than one or two tomatoes to save all the seed I'm going to use. But what I do is I, find a vigorous plant and I identify early on in its development a really good quality fruit on that plant and I tag it with a piece of yellow tape. Then I keep that plant fairly well thinned, meaning that at times of the year your tomato plants can just get absolutely loaded. I don't let it get loaded with fruit because I want a lot of energy going into that that one fruit that I've selected, but I can pick maybe eight or 10 or a dozen other tomatoes off that plant and consume them and, and be just fine with that. But I don't let it get overloaded with fruit. And when I harvest that tomato, again, I harvest it long after it would be considered you know, good for my salad. In fact, many times I'll just wait until it naturally falls on the ground and drops off the plant. Same thing is true with cucumbers and those, you know, those baseball bat zucchinis you get. That's the kind of zucchini you want to save for seed, not, not the one that's going to go to your table. And I simply uh, you know, take that in and, and I use a, a large, um, um, uh, it's, like a, it's like a colander, but basically it's a screen, but it's the size of a colander. And I separate the seed from the tomato as best I can, wash off all of the all of the flesh that's around the, the seed and try to get it down to the pure seed. Be careful not to rub the seed against the screen because that scarifies the seed or damages the outer 
the outer shell of the seed, and that's one of the stimulants for seed germination. So they won't store as well if you scratch the seed. But you want to get it as clean as you possibly can, and typically uh, uh, that takes a, a few minutes to accomplish. You don't want to just casually rinse it off for the next step, but take some time and, and get it as clean as you can. And take the seed then, and I use a paper towel on a paper plate, and I will take the seed out of the screen and I'll spread it around evenly on the top of a paper towel. It doesn't have to be a paper plate, but it absorbs moisture too, because you need now to get that seed down to less than 12% too. And the best way to do that is just in a dark area and uh, you know allow, allow the seed to dry. Typically mine will, will dry in maybe three or four days time. Uh, and then I, I, I break the seed loose because it kind of sticks to the paper towel, break the seed loose, uh, do a, a moisture test on it just like I did with the bean with a pocket knife, make sure it doesn't slice but it shatters, and then the same thing, label it, package it, and, uh, and date it for storage. So uh, now I've got my tomato seeds that are dry, that are in a, in a package, and I like to use a, a package that's airtight, that's moisture tight, I should say, but it doesn't have to be airtight. Uh, there's a real misconception about needing to vacuum pack your seeds if you're going to save them for a long time. Uh, that's an internet marketing or a late night television commercial uh, uh, in, in, you know, incentive for you to buy seed from them because you've got to save it for the, the time of trouble. And, uh, you know, we don't know when that's going to be, so you get your hermetically sealed uh, uh, seed in a package that's then hermetically sealed inside of a steel can so it will last through the, you know, through the atomic blast. And what they don't tell you, though, is they guess what kind of seed they select for those kinds of marketing toys. They, they get the crummiest stuff they can buy because they know that, hey, you know, if that time of trouble does come, they're not going to be around anyway to come back on. And the likelihood of you planting that and, uh, and coming back on them, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road is pretty slim. So don't fall for those things at all. Um, that just doesn't work. Although it is possible to save your seed for as long as, as, as 10 or 12 years. I have some lettuce seed that I saved that I used up, I, I mean, I used it commercially up until it was nine. In the 10th season, the germination started to drop a little bit, although I still could have used it for home use. I stopped using it because, you know, it was down to about 75, 78% germination. And, uh, you know, you can store these things for a long time, but one of the requirements seed have, has is, is some air. So that hermetically sealed stuff is just not, not practical. And when we, uh, you know, when we talk about storage, when we consider storage, there are three things that trigger a seed to germinate. We often think of seeds as just being dormant and dead, and that's not true at all. They're very active, or they can be very active. And there are many different enzyme activities that take place in seed with variations in moisture, light, and temperature. And that's what triggers the germination. And if the seed doesn't germinate, it still wears itself out. The energy that's stored in its seed wears itself out when it gets a signal to germinate. And it's going, oh, it's time to germinate. No, no, it's not. Uh, it's time to germinate. No, no, it's not. Every time it goes through a cycle like that, it diminishes the viability of the seed and reduces its potential to save all that energy to put into a good, strong plant. 
you know, when we plant our seeds, take a bean for example, when we plant our seeds, all of the energy that forms all of the roots and all of the stem, and as the cotyledons come out of the ground and the first leaves begin to form, there's really no food production going on until those first true leaves fully expand. And in the case of a bean, that can be two or three weeks. The, all the energy for that initial growth comes from the seed. So it's got a big job to do, and we don't want to compromise it in any way. So we want to store our seed in an environment that is dry. We want to keep it below less than 12%. And, uh, you know, the container can do part of that job, but I prefer an environment that, that where, where, where the air surrounding the jar is also at 12% or less. And light is a trigger for seed. In fact, some seeds require light to germinate. Lettuce will not germinate in the dark. It requires some light. And if we want to store that seed, we want to eliminate all those signals from, from light. So we want it in the dark. And we want a steady, cool temperature because temperature fluctuations also affect the enzymes in that seed. So anywhere that we can store this, where the moisture is steady, there is no light, and the temperature is cool and steady, there are a variety of ways we can do this. My preference is to use a freezer. I'm a, I'm a commercial grower, so I have a lot of seed, and I keep enough seed to last for about three years, so I have a small chest freezer that I keep my seed in. It's not very big, it's maybe nine, 10 cubic feet, something like that, and the only thing in that freezer is my seed. The reason for that, a lot of people keep their seed in the refrigerator, they see this and they say, well, we'll put it in the fridge or we'll put it in, in, in the freezer uh, you know, above the refrigerator. It's not a really good idea because we're opening and closing those doors all the time. And not only that, but the, the food products that we put in our refrigerator, especially fruits, give off a, a plant hormone called ethylene. As they ripen and as they start to, uh, to decompose, they, they give off ethylene, and ethylene is deadly to seed. It will damage it and prevent it from germinating, too. So, you know, if you do decide to use something like a freezer, uh, one that you might use for a long uh, period of storage uh, uh, that has food items on it wouldn't be so bad, but you don't want to put this in, in your daily refrigerator. Uh, other methods of, of, of storing it, it doesn't have to be freezing, but freezing does not hurt seed, uh, temperate zone seeds. I wouldn't put tropical seeds in a freezer. But any of the typical garden vegetables that we go, grow can, can easily be stored in the freezer. And most of them will store for, for quite some time. Now in the case of beans, I recommend that we definitely replenish bean seed about once every three years. Beans lose viability faster than other seeds, in part because they're so high in protein. And the enzyme activity that's taking place in the bean will, will wear it out pretty quickly. But uh, other varieties of, of seed, kale, beets, uh, lettuce, um, a wide variety of different things can, can last for really quite a long time and, uh, and maintain their viability. But I still think it's best to use fresh seed and I strive to replace my seed about once every three years. The open pollinated varieties that I grow are, are, are replenished about once every three years. It's rare that I use nine-year-old 
lettuce seed, but that was an experiment on my part to see how long it, it, it would, would, uh, would hold for me. <clears throat> now, if you don't have a freezer, you don't want to buy a freezer uh, to dedicate to your seed storage, I, I would suggest doing this if you're a market farmer and you're going through quantities of seed. I probably go through, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 pounds of seed a year various crops of, of just vegetable seed and when I talk about corn and beans there's another maybe 100 pounds of that so a, you know a, a small chest freezer is adequate for me and and really what I kind of need if you're growing and you don't need that much seed then there are other ways of storing it too without refrigeration and one of the ways you can do that is by burying the seed take your seed in your seed packages put it in a five gallon bucket, seal the five gallon bucket and bury it about two or three feet underground where you've got nice steady soil temperature. It's, it's cool, it's not freezing, but it's cool and it's very, very steady. You're not getting big variations. You'll get a little variation of a few degrees over a year's time, but it's not, it's not changing dramatically. If you put it in, a, in an upright chest freezer and you open and close that door, do you know how much the temperature changes in that, in, that, in that upright freezer when you open that door? It'll, it'll change by 30 or 40 degrees. It's still freezing inside. You're going from zero maybe to 32 degrees air temperature in there, but that's a, a big range of shock just by opening the door. So you want to limit the temperature shock, so burying it is one method of doing that. If you've got a, you know, a, a root cellar or a cellar in, in your house that stays cool but at a very uniform temperature that's the place where you want to store your seed. Now I put mine when I harvest it it goes into freezer bags. I keep most of my seed in Ziploc freezer bags and I usually double bag it when I put it in the freezer because I want it to be at 12 per, less than 12 percent moisture but I want, don't want to dehydrate it either. And in sometimes in, in some environments in a freezer, the air will get so dry that you'll actually dry the seed down too far. And I use a double bagging system with Ziploc bags for most of my seed. What I'll do is I'll take my seven different broccoli varieties and I've got a, maybe a quart size bag of, of seed for each of those varieties. And then I'll combine all of those into a gallon uh, Ziploc bag or a two gallon Ziploc bag and and have it sealed uh, in by by variety I've got my broccoli in the big bag and I've got my seven varieties in smaller bags uh, within that larger bag and that, uh, that that's typically how I do it. I want to encourage you based on what I've shared with you to a save your own seed from the open pollinated varieties that you use but also experiment a little bit I've had some fun doing this I've got a, um, a squash that I started growing eight years ago that I decided might be kind of interesting to hybridize. So I crossed uh, an Amish neck pumpkin with a butternut squash and I produced this enormous, I mean enormous squash. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I was growing them, trying to sell them at market for a while, and then I gave up selling them at market because they were just too big for people to use. These things weighed 40 or 50 pounds, but they were really cool because they had a really tiny little seed cavity at the base of it, and the rest of it was all flesh. And you could just slice it like salmon steaks. I mean, it was... <laughs> 
it was it was amazing and you know feed enormous numbers of people um, I, I carried this through the hybridization process of going to the seventh generation to make a new open pollinated variety and I had hoped to bring some of that seed to this conference here because uh, this fall I harvested the F7 generation and it's just like F6 was but we had a really wet summer and fall in West Virginia and while this crop was 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 ripening it was dramatically overwatered and when I cut the first couple of them open to uh, you know to eat a couple of them uh, the flavor just wasn't very good and uh, they were nice they weren't bad but they weren't sweet the way they would have been if they they dried down in a, in a dry environment so I'm going to wait until next year just to make sure that I didn't pick up a genetic characteristic for it not tasting as good uh, before I before I start marketing it but that's that's a new variety that we developed at Berea Gardens and it was kind of fun doing it another one of my favorite uh, uh, squash plants is, uh, is scarlet kabocha kabocha squash is, is a Japanese winter squash and if you hadn't tried this scarlet kabocha please give it a try it's amazing that is the most fabulous tasting squash I've ever had. We typically just cut them in half and they, they're, they're orange and they're fairly, they look like a fairly small pumpkin, uh, but the flavor is just, just rich and wonderful. And you know, typically I like to put a little olive oil and maybe a little salt on, uh, on, on my winter squash when I eat it. This thing, you just eat by itself. You don't need anything on it. It's marvelous. And the skin is very light and, and can be eaten too. It's awesome. But it's a hybrid. And one of the things that I've uh, uh, undertaken now is to get this thing through this seven stage process, seven season process, to see if I can come up with an open pollinated variety that has some of the desirable characteristics. It's likely to look very different. I'm at the F3 stage with this thing right now, and it's absolutely a mottled green color. It doesn't look anything like uh, what the original hybrid uh, uh, seed, seed produced, the orange color. It's a mottled green, similar shape, uh, similar uh, texture, and the texture too is important to me with squash. The flavor is not quite as good as the F1 was, but it's, 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 it's good enough. It's better than open pollinated butternut, which is what we kind of replace these things with in our diet, and it's been, uh, been very enjoyable to, to eat. So I've got four more years to go to see if I can get that to a state where it's an open pollinated variety. And that's an example of what can be done, you know, with, with, with hybrid seed, too. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.